My name is Ryan Kim, and this is the Jen's Lens. Have you read an article on GameStop recently that uses complicated phrases such as shorting a stock? Today, I will sort through the chaos of the market alongside Paul Gallietto, the head of equities at the global investment banking firm Credit Suisse. Join me today as I learn about the market, stocks, and so much more. So, um, before we get started, maybe you could uh, talk a little bit about your background in investment banking and how you chose the industry as your career. Okay. Well, that's certainly something you know I, I'm allowed to talk about. Um, unfortunately, it might be the most boring part of <laughs> of of the of the audio tape or the podcast you're putting together. And you know, so what I tell you, Ryan, is unlike a lot of folks who always, you know, had an awareness of finance or investment banking or capital markets or trading, um, I had no idea what it was. And I went to high school and graduated from college uh, with a general management degree and actually wound up in the 1970s in the technology business uh, for a number of years. And then just through meeting friends, you know, I wound up... um, switching industries, you know, into uh, investment banking or sales and trading. And I, I wound up in, a, in an equity, uh, equity sales role. And, you know, I think um, what's kind of interesting about that is, you know, all that long ago, you know, Wall Street was kind of out of favor and the level of competition that existed to land these jobs was high but it wasn't nearly as high as it's been in the past, you know, 15 or 20 years. And, you know, it's a little embarrassing to say, you know, on a podcast, but, you know, it was more, it just happened than I had a vision or a passion. Um, the second part of the story though, is um, when I actually got into the business and it, because I had zero, when I say zero, I had zero background. I don't even know how I got my first job. I had nobody in my family that had any industry experience or knowledge. There was no one I could turn to. So it probably took me a little longer to learn about the business and get a feel for it than maybe some of the other folks that were new to the business back then in the, in the early to mid eighties. And I, I guess what I would say, the second part of the story is, once I figured it out or sort of figured it out or began to figure it out, I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. And the reason I thought it was really cool is it didn't matter what you were doing. You could be walking down the street and see somebody that's wearing a, a new kind of sneakers, or you could walk down the street and see an electric car that you'd never seen before. And everything mattered to the economic equation for our society uh, that was reflected in the formation of capital and the pricing of shares. And it, you know, had this 
picture of the world that was this like massive interaction, interactive model of needs for goods and services and capital that you needed to uh, form to create those goods or to deliver those services. And that that equation was 24 seven. And once you sort of saw the capital markets and the functioning of the world of finance as dealing with supply and demand of goods and services, it was just like such a cool, fascinating equation. Like my mind took off and that was, you know, Mm-hmm. approaching four decades ago. Uh, and I just never, ever, ever got tired of it. I thought it was the coolest thing I ever saw. So admittedly, a little bit of an odd path uh, to the industry. Mm-hmm. But once I figured it out, I think it's the coolest thing in the world. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's so interesting that you said that because I have two older sisters, both of who um, have had, they, they, they've known what they've wanted to do um, for a while now, and me as a 14-year-old boy, you know, I'm not sure what I want to do yet. I don't know if I want to get into finance and business or, like, real estate. Uh, And so as I take my classes, you know, every year I sort of have a different favorite class. This year it happens to be English. And so it's it's just really interesting to me to see that um, someone of, I guess, a high position at a a pretty reputable investment bank... um, didn't know what he wanted to do from a very young age. You know, my middle sister, who's 16, um, ever since she was little, she's been talking about science and how she wants to be a doctor. Um, but it's it's cool to see that not everyone in high positions um, are dedicated from day one to, uh, to be um, what they turn out to be. Um, so as, as I was doing some research into um, uh, everything that's going on in the markets, I've I found that um, there's some baseline or underlying terms or, I guess, phrases that uh, I think would be helpful for me and to our listeners to understand before uh, we start talking about the meat of the whole story and scenario that's been going on for weeks now. Um, and I guess we could start off with uh, your definition definition of what a share is, uh, what a stock is, and, and how and why do people buy and sell stocks? You know, it's it sounds like such a basic question, Ryan, um, and um, but it's not. It's actually a really, really good question. And you know, as you you know, sort of heard in my first answer uh, to your first question, uh, I've been doing this for a long time, and for many, many years, um, I would speak in front of. Uh, the intern classes, the summer interns who are usually, but not exclusively between their junior and senior year in college. And then I'd also speak to our new associate classes who had just graduated from college and are, um, are joining the industry for the first time. And I'd stand up in some auditorium or some conference room and I'd ask the simple question, why do share prices go up and down? And you have these really, really well-educated, either college graduates or soon-to-be graduates. And, you know, you get all kinds of, you know, wild, wild answers. And, you know, anything from because the products are are really popular to there's more buyers than sellers to, you know, uh, it's it's in a hot sector. And, you know, all of those are sort of peripheral to the central issue. 
And the central issue is, you know, we live in a capitalist society and capital, as I, as I've already mentioned, is required to produce the goods and services that we need to have a standard of living uh, in our country. Uh, that standard of living, we hope, is, you know, rising for uh, our entire population. And we believe that this system of allocating resources to produce goods and services is a fair and reasonable one. And that's why part of the reason, but not all the reason that we have regulations. But, you know, back to the central issue, uh, if you were applying capital to an equation, that means we're bringing money to invest to an idea or an enterprise to produce um, a cup of coffee, to produce the sneakers that you're wearing right now, to produce the uh, the uh, recording device or the PC that you're using, and and all of those applications of money, all of those applications of capital, are intended to produce a profit, and some of that profit is returned to the company to increase capacity or to diversify that company's interests, and some of that uh, profit is returned to shareholders in multiple forms. Uh, share repurchases or in dividends. So what a share is in purest theory is the present value of the future cash distributions that that enterprise can make to the owners of the company, to the owners of the shares. And all of the other factors that um, are peripheral to that central truth are influences, but not the essence of what a share is. The present value of the future cash distributions to the owner of that share. And so that's what a share is all about. Mm -hmm. Wow. So is that kind of crazy? Yeah. It's kind of crazy that, you know, that's what it boils down to. Right. Um, And as I said, you know, I've had this conversation with multiple, multiple intern and analyst associate classes, and it's just a fascinating conversation. It's actually a really good question. Yeah, and so you know, buying and selling shares. Uh, so wh- why would why would one buy or sell a share? You know, if you're if you're buying, to my understanding, if you're buying a share in a company, it's because um, there's something about the share that's appealing to you, and of course. Contrary, on the contrary, if you're if you're selling a share, it's because there's something that you don't like about it. But why exactly would someone buy or sell um, a share in a company? Sure. Um, well, I talked about some of these influences that are peripheral. Okay, um, and they there can be valid and invalid reasons for uh, buying and selling shares. So let's just put that category of of mania and um, non-fundamental purchasing off to one corner. And let's just deal with uh, thinking about the present value of the future cash distributions of this company uh, that wants to give money back to its shareholders and they're returning money because shareholders put up the money for that company to produce goods and services. So why would somebody pay more uh, for a share and buy it and think it's going higher? Or why would they sell it or sell it short if they thought it was going lower? And it all has to do with what are the legitimate um, 
changes in that company's prospects to earn more money or less money such that the available cash for distribution to shareholders might be higher or might be lower. You know, going back to those associate classes that I used to teach a long time ago, years ago, you know, I used to say that, you know, kids or younger, younger folks would come and sit down with me or I teach this in the class. I said, How, what is your personal makeup? Do you believe there's very exacting and generally precise values um, in, in securities valuation? And somebody say, absolutely, I believe that the math is, can be perfect and there should be a per- precise value associated with it. Uh, with a security. And I say, well, you should go to the fixed income floor and work in uh, structured products or, or credit or, or um, generally fixed income. And if you're of the belief that, you know, there's the world is not that precise and there's a range of potential outcomes that can be factored into a share price, they say we should say with us here in equities. And a simple way to think about it is, you know, stocks can be, you know, have good moods and bad moods. They're, the world can believe that a company's prospects for continued growth and larger distributions to shareholders of cash, you know, is going to be bigger and better than anyone believed possible. And therefore, the cash pool to be distributed is going to be larger. So I can pay more for that share today. Or stocks can be in really, really bad moods and say, oh, woe is me. There's no real prospect for growth. I don't even know if we're going to be in business in, in, in 10, 15, or 20 years. And the amount of cash that's going to be distributable to me is very low. And therefore, the stock price can be much lower. So the short version of that very long story is the conviction or lack of conviction about a company's prospects to prosper or not to prosper will determine what the future uh, pile of cash that can be distributed to shareholders is, or it will be, at least it will be a reflection of what the market's belief is about how large that pile of cash to distribute will be. And when you discount that back to present value, you wind up at a calculated share price. And that belief moves around, and that's what moves share prices. Does that make any sense? Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, at one point, I think you mentioned um, selling a selling a share short or shorting a share, and that was something that was a phrase that came up a lot as I was doing my research and um, everything that's been happening with the stock market. What exactly does it mean to sell a share short or to short a share? Sure. So, you know, we usually think of a long sale, and that means I today I own a share of a company. What's what? Uh, what kind of uh, computer do you have? Do you have a uh, an Apple computer or do you have a Microsoft computer? Yeah, I use an Apple computer, a MacBook Pro. Okay. If you really love your computer, um, you might want to say, "Hey, you know, I want to own a share in Apple." Because, um, because I really believe it's a great company and I believe that it's going to grow faster than most people think. And I believe that their um, growth strategies, which move beyond you know, iPads and Macs and iPhones, is likely to be 
you know, wildly successful because they're such wonderful engineers of consumer products and that their, you know, their entire corporate architecture appeals to you. And so you're enormously confident in, uh, in that. And so you buy this share. That means you're long the share. You own the share. And the stock might go up by a whole bunch. And you say, well, geez, I really, really love the company. And I think it's the coolest company in the world, but the stock has gone up so much, I'm not certain that they can achieve those new expectations that are embedded in that share price. And you might decide to sell that share and you will have made a good chunk of money. A lot of people have done that. Apple's performed incredibly well. But let's say you're, you know, you're going to school uh, one day and you're walking down the street and you bump into your buddy as you're on the way to school and he has a Microsoft computer. And um, he says, hey, you know, you should see my new Microsoft and the new Windows. It's like the coolest thing in the world. And I know everybody wants to own an Apple computer, but I have a Microsoft computer. And I'm telling you, Ryan, it's really awesome. And everybody just kind of like buys Apple because that's the consensus and that's what everybody does. But I have this one and I think it's really cool. And I think it's going to be really, really popular. And I think it's going to impact um, the growth rate for Apple because Microsoft's going to sell a lot of these. And I'm so confident in that view that I think Apple's share price might even be impacted by it. So I say, hey, I don't, I think that share price can go lower. So then I go to, you know, the account I have that buys and sells securities. And I say to the dealer, I say, hey, I want to sell this stock short. And the dealer says, well, wait a minute, I have to make sure I can borrow that share before he can. So they go back and check uh, that they have a share that's on their books that they can lend to you, and they lend that to you for a price. That process is called a locate. So they've located a share to lend to you. That share is lent to you, and then you go into your friend goes into the market and sells one share of Apple that he's borrowed, and he sells it um, short. And so now he's counting on or he makes money when the price of Apple goes down. He would lose money if the price of Apple goes up. And that's how a short sale works. And that's part of the reasons why people will go back and forth. Fundamentally, there's a conversation uh, in the marketplace by market participants, both individuals and institutions that make a determination if a stock is overvalued or undervalued based on that pile of cash that exists in the future that's discounted back from uh, a t point in the future to present value. And that discussion, debate, or interaction of buying and selling is a reflection of the, of the changing views of the long-term prospects of a company. Some people will believe it's too high. They might sell short. Some people will believe it's too low. They may buy shares, and that's the that's the fundamental function. Yeah, well, that makes that makes a lot of sense. You know, as I was reading, I sort of I think I had a good idea, but I wasn't really sure what it meant. But uh, now now it makes so much more sense why it was such a big factor in um, the craziness of what's been going on in the market. Uh, but yeah, I, I was hearing these stories about these like ten year olds who are making like fifteen hundred dollars, and then. Uh, on the on the other side, I was hearing about hedge funds losing like billions of dollars. And so, who who exactly is trading stocks, and 
why why can a ten year old make fifteen hundred dollars while um, a hedge fund is losing like a billion dollars? <laughs> okay, well, um, I guess where I would start is um, uh, you know somebody's parents needs to sign a a account opening document. Um, so a 10 year old, you know, it's a little bit of a stretch, uh, or maybe it's a little bit of a made up news story. Um, but in order to actually open that account that you can either own a stock or you can sell a stock short, uh, you have to go through an account opening process at a broker and that account opening process you know, has some pretty strict rules in it in terms of who's allowed uh, to actually open that account. And every company, every bank, every investment bank, every broker dealer is subject to regulations from the Securities and Exchange Commission about knowing your client and other pre-account opening requirements that are pretty extensive. So, you know, I would say that if a 10-year-old made money, they really made money in their parents uh, or their older brothers or sisters account who was able to get through that process. And that process is not a layup. There's some, you know, there's some real rigor to it by design, okay? Um, You're not going to let a 10-year-old, you know, drive a car. You're really not going to let a 10 year old drive a securities account. Mm-hmm. And that's just sort of the reality of it. You know, the second part of your question is why would a novice investor, a 10 year old theoretically, um, you know, prosper when a professional investor um, would suffer? Look, there's lots of different reasons for that. Um, and I guess what I would say is and it's central to what went on in the market. And there is some technical sensitivities in this area about what I can say and not say, but there is public information um, that securities regulators require in terms of how many shares of a specific company are shorted. Remember, I in my prior answer, I said um, every a uh, broker dealer needs to establish something called a locate. And that means they know they have the share available to lend to the person that wants to sell it short. And that person who sells it short pays a fee. And so sometimes what happens is people look through that data and say, oh, wow, XYZ company has a whole bunch of shares short. Maybe I'll own some of that company. Uh, because those people that are short the stock eventually are going to have to buy the stock. And I think the company is actually doing kind of okay, and they may buy that stock at a higher price level. There's a lot of aspects to what I just said. There's a lot of complexity. There's a lot of moving pieces. But I think the essence of what was taking place is some of this public information about large short positions in individual companies was focused on by the public at large, and that created some of the activity that I'm describing. May not be that clear. I understand there's a lot of moving pieces there, but that's kind of what was going on in general terms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that the the puzzle pieces are all definitely coming together. Uh, 
Um, so, I mean, a lot of the times when when I, I hear people talking about this situation in the stock market or I, I, I'm reading news articles or I'm watching the news, um, the whole situation has a really, really negative connotation. And I was just wondering if there, mm. if there can be any positive drop, uh, if there can be any positives drawn from this situation. Um, yeah. Um, you know, look, I think it's a great question, Ryan, um, that, you know, the whole tone of the news flow is, you know, somebody's getting taken advantage of, somebody got hurt, you know, it's, it's been, it's been reported in the press as, you know, a, a, a series of fears of manipulations by either individuals or institutions. And, you know, that's one way to tell the story. Um, and that's the way the press has, has kind of chosen to cover it, right? But I think there's another story um, that is maybe longer lasting and more important, especially for, you know, a young person like you and I assume most of the folks that are going to be hearing the podcast or people, you know, from school or in your age group in other schools. And, and look, you know, the, the positive story is in our country, um, individuals, um, have the right, um, to study the stock market. They have the right to both buy securities long and to sell securities short and use their brain, their powers of observation and powers of analysis to make a conclusion about how they want to invest. Um, and, you know, not every economic system um, has the same level of access uh, and not every economic system has the same level of capital that is formed by companies to produce goods and services that you and your friends get to make a study and analysis of and make a determination if you think the company prospects are fully reflected in the share price, um, where you may do nothing more than fully or overly uh, reflected in the share price. You might choose to sell the stock short because you think it would go lower in your assessment, or as happens to be the case more frequently, you like the company, you like their products, you like their services, you've done the work and you've figured out how big that pile of cash is going to be uh, built up over a 30-year forward period. You get out your fancy calculator and you use your present value function to determine what that stock price is worth, worth today and you and your friends go out and buy it and you make money if your assessment is correct. So fundamentally, the good news here is that in our country, the individual has the right to exercise judgment and choice and to be invested in our economy, either on the long side or the short side. And that's part of that capital formation process, which goes back to the question I answered about what is a share? And it's really, remember I said it was really, really important question. It's a really, really important question for our economic system to function. Yeah. And, I may be right or I may be wrong, but what I first had heard the situation, um, one positive that came to mind was um, whether people are losing money or making money, it seemed like there was a lot more engagement and a lot of young people were learning or wanted to learn, uh, like me, about the stock market um, and shares and stocks and what shorting a share means. Um, 
And so that was just one positive that I saw was people were learning and they wanted to learn more about the stock market. Um, so I guess adding on to that, um, if would what advice would you give to a 15 or 14 year old as they uh, want to begin like an investing journey per se? Yeah, um, it's a great question. And um, before I answer it, you know, I just want to, you know, acknowledge that your reaction that a wider group of people wanted to study and learn, you know, really is a, a great benefit of, of some of these news headlines that had a little bit of a, um, a negative spin. You know, I'll also point out that earlier today, um, you know, the U S government, uh, and the, um, one of the uh, newly, um, nominated regulators or possibly the regulator themselves. I'm not certain where the quote came from, but there was concerns about the gamification. That was the word they used of the stock market. It's not a game. It's not, you know, let's, uh, let's get a dartboard and put symbols on the dartboard and, and throw darts. And if it lands on one stock versus the other, that we, we will buy it or we will sell it. And the regulatory commentary was about reviewing regulations to prevent gamification. Um, we've talked a lot about, you know, the present value of future accumulated cash that's been generated by a company and enterprise by providing goods and services. I keep going back to that because that's not gamification. That's really, really, really what companies do and how shares or ultimate, the value of shares is ultimately going to be determined. Mm-hmm. So back to your question, um, if you want to really learn about these things, you know, one of the best ways to do it that's, you know, pretty achievable, and I think it's awfully cheap these days, is just go get an online account for the Wall Street Journal. And, you know, mm-hmm. you don't have to carry the, you know, the written paper around and, you know, people won't think you're a nerd, you know, because all you have is your your laptop or your iPad and you can just just click on the app and go in and read the headlines and think about think about um, these companies that are out there trying to produce cash to return to the people that own their shares. And you'll learn about businesses and you'll learn about industries and you'll learn about how much people are, uh, uh, are willing to pay. Uh, depending on what the company is and the prospects for that industry. And, you know, just being an avid observer and an active reader of the business press as a 14 or 15 year old, you would be surprised, you know, if you actually set yourself to the discipline of reading the Wall Street Journal, you know, at least, you know, you're still in high school and, you know, you got other stuff you want to do, but say at least two days a week, that you actually really spend, you know, 20 or 30 minutes and read it. And, you know, at first the articles will be hard to read. The words don't make sense. It's, you know, it's kind of a pain in the neck. It's not that interesting. And then within a month, you'd be surprised how much easier the newspaper will be to read, how much more sense it makes. And then when you look back on it in two months, you'll be shocked at how much you've learned. So just reading the paper is a great starting point. Yeah, and I, I think that's great advice. Um, 
because a lot of people don't have access to a dad who's in the industry or access to someone like you who uh, where I can just ask you a bunch of questions about different situations that are going on. But um, I think that's great advice to all the listeners out there, I guess, to just uh, pay for a subscription to the Wall Street Journal and just read. Um, but I guess that's all I wanted to cover in today's episode. Thank you so much for your time again because... Um, I know how busy you are. Ryan, hey, look, you, you asked great questions. Um, and I really, really enjoyed it. And um, maybe we'll even do uh, another podcast in a few months um, that you can have round two for you know some other topic that's more specific or for that matter, even more generic. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought your questions were great. And I hope uh, everybody that listens to the podcast uh, enjoys the show as well. Yeah, thank thank you so much for your time. Thank you all so much for listening in to today's episode. Look forward to an upcoming episode with Judy Ju, TV chef and entrepreneur.